Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to have Kerry Bentley alongside me. Kerry is the Managing Director, Founder and Owner of DBC Training, a company which positively impacts people's lives by helping them achieve qualifications, upskill and find sustainable employment. Uh, Kerry, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us today. Thank you and thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure having you joining us on the airwaves. Um, Normally we would dive straight in with the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus but just considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation I feel it's appropriate we start there. I'm sure you'll agree, Kerry, that from a leadership point of view, it's been one of the greatest challenges of our time for business leaders and leaders of governments alike. But how has it affected you and your operations over the last few months? Um, Quite significantly. So as a training organisation, our business is built around face-to-face interaction, training individuals, getting the best out of people. Um, So as soon as we knew that schools would close, we were aware that we would have to close as well. Um, So obviously we had three days to get our team up and working in a remote fashion, really. Um, I have to say the team reacted to the challenge um, very well. We um, got them all remote working. They've rewritten curriculum. They've been able to work with all of our apprentices. And I do have to say, really, really, really good outcomes in this period. So um, our apprentices go through a process called endpoint assessment. In that time, we've had 27 apprentices go through between March and June, which is um, by no means a mean feat in itself. And 96% of those apprentices have passed with distinction. So I think that's a really positive thing that's come from it. We've been able to um, develop remote leadership management courses. Um, The challenges of homeworking and homeschooling together. Well, what can you say about that is the honest answer. Um, Homeschooling in itself brings other challenges. Um, I think as a manager, every day is very, very different. So we plan one day, government policy changes, and furloughs introduced. Um, your team are quite anxious, not knowing what the future holds. So I think as a manager, it's about being reactive and taking time out to reflect, to have a look and evolve and change. What I will say is I think this has really, really changed the way that we will work in the future. Mm. So um, our curriculum's been rewritten. We've done remote leadership management training. And our officers are usually very busy. Um, what I, uh, and I think looking at this as a whole organisation, we will look to work remotely moving forward. Um, obviously, face-to-face interaction in our industry is key. Being able to get back out to businesses and help them with solutions to their problems and engagement of new staff and recruitment is massively done face-to-face. However, again, I think we are, we're all learning to work in this new normal. And, and for us, we will definitely be looking at having a more remote working policy moving forward. We're looking at our office capability and location. 
and actually do we need to be in the places that we are currently in mm-hmm. with the size premises that we have. So certainly plenty to consider for the future as well. And considering yep. um, that uh, future, particularly over the uh, the next few months, as government yep. support schemes do begin to wind down in October, um, it is predicted yep. that there will be a lot of redundancies on the horizon. So are you almost ready for yourselves for an increase in the demand for services such as yours? Yeah, definitely. And there's lots and lots of schemes out there to help. I'm sure you're aware of kick. Mm-hmm. and the apprenticeship incentives that are currently out there at present and obviously as we say yes those increases just where our head office is in Derby City alone in July over a thousand young people in Derby City made a claim for employment support allowance um, so, so there's massive implications we're obviously in an area that's highly reliant on Rolls-Royce um, and, and the redundancies are obviously creeping up and creeping up. An organisation like ours is there to help and support. And yes, we are all geared up to do that. And I think one of the key skills that individuals need in this time is digital skills. Mm. Um, and one of the new, I suppose we are doing a three-day course that helps individuals, which is called the new normal, which teaches them to do Zoom interviews, Teams calls, because a lot of individuals have never been exposed to that um, need. So to be able to actually apply for a job and then go on and do an interview online is quite daunting for a lot of people. Um, So we're doing courses around that, getting people back ready. We're working as an intermediary as the kickstart. So obviously there was um, the announcement where you needed to have 30 positions. And obviously, a lot of SMEs that need that support and individuals could benefit don't have 30 positions. So there's loads of incentives around there. And yes, the demand is massively, massively going to rise. And as an organisation, for us, it's all about getting people back into positive employment. Mm. So yes, we're really geared. We have lots of employer relationships where there are are sectors that are still doing very well, which are your logistics and your warehousing sectors. So there's big recruitment going on in the East Midlands at the moment where we're getting involved, so we're working with large organisations to do pre-employability courses. And I suppose that when people are trained up and then in sustainable employment, the training never stops, does it? And it's almost the same with leadership in a sense, because it is a constant learning process. We are never a finished article and we do have to constantly update our skills. And that takes me nicely onto a report that was released pre-pandemic, actually, by City and Guilds in February, which was titled Missing Millions. And that talked about the impact of people in employment who aren't receiving training to keep their skills up to date. And that is essentially making them lose out. So when there are redundancies in future, they're sort of less able to be competitive in what is ultimately a competitive job market. So there'll always be the need for that training, won't there, even when people are in their own jobs? There's always need for training. And I think one of the lessons I've learned as a manager over the years is that you're always learning. And there's definitely a need for lifelong learning. It's, it should start really, really young and be embedded through your whole career. Um, myself as a leader, I, I've done training throughout my um, career and I'm continually doing training and you learn every day and I think the best leaders actually if you're not learning as you say you're, you're more at risk of redundancy um, obviously the redundancy is done in a, 
a way where their tools and skills and attributes are taken into consideration. And a lot of individuals find themselves redundant because they haven't learned, they have been mm. stagnant in what they're doing. I think, um, obviously, the apprentice levy is helping with individuals and training and more and more organizations are becoming aware that learning and lifelong learning is the way to get the best out of the team and the staff. And I suppose that if we can try and find some silver lining in what's been a dark and dense cloud over yeah. all of us, this COVID-19 pandemic, it is the fact that it has been a learning curve of sorts, hasn't it? It has forced the hand of businesses to be creative, to innovate. And we can take a lot from that, even though it has ultimately been a very challenging and a very sensitive time for many. Yeah, absolutely. And I think positivity at the moment around, um, for us, we work in a turbulent sector at the best of times, but the the positivity and the bounce back and the recovery is definitely, definitely there. You can feel it. And I do feel that there are, as you say, there'll be winners and losers of pandemics and um, individuals really, really just need to take on the positives and and look look to bounce back. Mm. And of course, and if they need to re- sorry. No, it's fine, Carrie. Do do carry on. I was just going to say, and obviously, reskilling and upskilling is a key to that bounce back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I certainly um, see where you're coming from there. And I do agree with you. Um, with regards to um, sort of learning again, and there's just another little thing I wanted to uh, to focus on, because leaders are people whose ultimate role, a lot of people believe, is to essentially inspire and to motivate others. And um, as an educator yeah. as well, um, a lot of pressure can certainly come on you during a time of crisis such as this to keep people reassured when there is such an amount of uncertainty there. But when you are sort of in that kind of leadership and educating role yourself, where is it that you tend to look to for sort of inspiration for guidance as it were as and when you need it i think the key to all of that is surround yourself by a great team and that's something that i've done here um so i have a great exec team that um i look for inspiration to and i think i once watched a program and uh, it was about leaders and one of the key points of that was surround yourself by people that know better surround yourself by good people and I think that's where I look for my inspiration from. Around 18 months ago I took a non-executive into the business and that's been a massive, massive learning curve for me Uh, and again I I, I really do seek help from my non-executive I seek it from other leaders in the um, industry so I have good relationships with other leaders um, and it's easy just to pick up the phone and say, what are you doing? Um, And I think as a leader, if you don't ask those questions, then you're not actually a great leader if you don't seek help from others. It ties into a really nice quote from Nelson Mandela that actually surround yourself with people who are better than you. And that is incredible advice for anybody aspiring to be in a leadership position, isn't it? Be willing to surround yourself with a team of people who can compliment you and maybe do the things that you're not necessarily too good at yourself. And also be willing to learn from others as well, because in leadership roles, it's important to remember that we're not doing all of this alone. We can learn from other people. We can collaborate. And I think that is a real key point. People I hear people say regularly, it's very lonely at the top. Mm. Um, Get out there, network. There's lots of um, associations out there for small businesses where you can network with peers and other people. And it doesn't have to be lonely. And I think that's the best 
if if you're if you're feeling confident in your decisions, you'll get the best out of your team. I think that's absolutely right, Kerry. And um, just sort of um, reflecting on the career that you've had um, since, yep. of course, 2000, uh, where the company does have its roots. Um, you've yep. worked with over 30,000 people and positively impacted their lives by helping them gain qualifications and learn new skills. But having successfully set up that business and achieved so much, if you were to give some yep. advice to somebody who was maybe about to step into a leadership role for the first time, maybe setting up their own business, what advice would you have to give them to really get them on the road to success i think again it goes back to just take that advice seek help from other people and and always dream big is is my thing i started my career as an apprentice um and i was an apprentice in this industry and progressed fairly quickly through the ranks and i think for me it is it is learn as you go along so i i started as a level two apprentice to the level three um, progressed onto a level five leadership apprentice. And I think for me, it is about make sure that you know what you want to do, work hard, but keep a work-life balance as well. And it also shows the value of experience, isn't it? Having mentors is the one thing, but you've also got to get out there and try things for yourself and be willing to learn from those experiences too. Absolutely. And I think um, learning from your experience is the biggest piece of key advice. I know over the years the mistakes you make. And actually, if you don't make those mistakes, you don't actually learn. So I think it is key to say, yeah, I should have done that the other way. But actually, I didn't. I did it that way. And if I, if I was in that situation again, now I know which way I should address it. And every situation and every business is different. So don't beat yourself up if you make the wrong decision get on move on and, and carry on I think that's hugely important, not having that sort of blame culture in place and making sure that there's always a positive learning environment to be had there for sure. Um, our time on the programme uh, this morning is unfortunately drawing to its close, Kerry, but just before we do wrap things up, I would certainly like to talk about the uh, the future as well. Um, we know that we're going to have to keep adjusting to this new normal, as they call it, in the way that we live and the way that we work until there is hopefully, fingers crossed, in future a cure or a vaccine for the COVID-19 virus. But during that period of time, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at DBC Training? And indeed, where do you see the business being this time next year? I think what we're obviously trying to achieve is to positively impact and spark um spark everyone that comes to our life so let's make sure that people that do come to us have a really good experience let's make sure that if we help 10 people back into work then they're they're in sustained work that they're happy with what they do um and let's just make sure that we carry on living and um, believing our values which are to spark potential um and, and that's not just about the individuals that come in that's about our staff as well making sure that they're they're sparking potential um and i suppose the second part of that question where do i see the business in a year hopefully helping lots of individuals with lifelong learning helping individuals gain employment and just making sure that we we do and work within our communities and those communities that we work in have we, we have a positive impact um, as for the business growth, um, obviously for us, every year is different. We're in completely unprecedented times at the moment. So it's just making sure that we can keep adapting and changing to what happens. 
and making sure that we're here to support the individuals that need our help moving forward. And it is a shame that plenty of people will be in need of that support over the coming months. So I certainly wish you carry all of the luck in the world in these endeavours in helping these individuals who do need that training. And actually, just given how inspiring it's been having you joining us on the programme this morning, I actually think it would be wonderful to welcome you back onto the programme with us in a few months time, just to see how things are coming along a little bit further down the line. I'd be happy to join you and hopefully have some positive stories to share. I certainly hope that there will be for sure. Um, it's um, certainly going to be um, a very uncertain time with a lot of variables in the way that the pandemic could go. So let's just keep our fingers crossed on that front as well. And most importantly, Carrie, until we do hopefully speak again, do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on as well. And you, thank you very much for having me. I would reiterate that message as well to everybody listening today. Do please continue to look after yourselves and others during this time. It makes a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, I was speaking on today's programme to Kerry Bentley, Managing Director, Founder and Owner of DBC Training. Um, Next up on the programme today, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, having been elevated to the Upper House of Parliament in August 2015. He enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, having held various senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett. And that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways 
of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, Mm -hmm. but actually I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside 
the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 Uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would, people have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakira Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.